Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Um, now come, we pray, and uh, make this hour yours. Attach yourself to it, we would pray, um, with a living word. Uh, uh, give grace, Lord, where it is so desperately needed. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. It's good to see everyone. Find a way to, I think I'll just hold this. Mark and I are going to team teach this. We're just up here talking, trying to see how we're going to do this class. So hopefully... Um, if in my head this will go well, if Mark and I have a little bit of a conversation about Martin Luther uh, and then it opens up and it becomes sort of a, uh, uh, a class-wide conversation. Um, we're going to do two weeks, this week and next week. Roughly this week is supposed to be on the biography more or less of Luther and the next week kind of on his legacy, his theology, that sort of thing. It is... Um, Sort of tying into, in 2017, um, it's, right now it's called the Decade of Luther over in Germany. In 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the, the theses, the 95 theses, which were nailed to the door at the, uh, the Schlosskirche in, uh, in Wittenberg, the, uh, the Castle Church. And so they're doing a lot of, of, uh, of things in Germany in, in 2017. We, the Advent, are going to miss the crowds. We're going to go next summer in 2016. Um, still, they're preparing for a lot of that, and it's on the website. Um, uh, a group of Adventers are going to take a tour, a uh, tour of Germany, and, and uh, sort of a Martin Luther tour, a pilgrimage, if you like that word. Um, uh, uh, so we're going to fly into Berlin, start in Wittenberg, which is where Luther's kind of uh, really the seat of Luther, where the, the new university where he was a professor is, uh, and then work our way south and fly out of Munich. So... If you have any questions about that, Beth Flowers, who's an Adventer, and she's here, um, works at Brownell with Troy Hayes and, and a whole cadre of other folks. They're coordinating the trip for us. You can see the, the um, uh, info that's on the website. Of course, talk to me, talk to Mark, talk to Beth. If you have any questions, uh, sign up start on Tuesday. Hope you can join us. This is going to be a fun, fun trip. So this morning, Mark, <laughs> I don't really know how to start. Um, Luther, I guess we'll start here. Uh, Luther was born in 1483, I think, uh, uh, died in 1546, so that's a good place to start, just get a little bit of a, a place. What was going on? This was uh, culturally what was becoming known as the Renaissance, if that helps you a little bit in terms of the placement of other literature or music that was going on at the time. Historically, remember uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, so the the whole West was opening up um, to the East. Uh, Islam was well on the rise. The inquisitions that happened, um, the emperor, which was largely aligned with the pope, he was very distracted and having to, uh, to tend to both the growing need or, or desire to, to, to go West, uh, to, uh, 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 to go to the New World, but also fend off the Eastern, uh, the Eastern border. And so right there then in the middle, this 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 boar in the vineyard, as the Pope would call him, this, this drunken monk, uh, Martin Luther, came onto the scene. Um, uh, well, I don't really, gosh, how do we even start here? Uh, Luther. I'll just say personally where it starts, and then I'll get Mark to say something about that, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at some slides and start to get something going. Um, Luther is who I cut my teeth on, so to speak. Uh, he means a lot to me personally. He's certainly the theologian that I uh, uh, have given my heart and my mind to the most over the last 20 years, which is hard to believe. I was thinking about that when I was preparing for this class to use this kind of kind of language. But I was looking through some of the books that you know I brought and 
just how much I enjoy reading about Luther. In some ways, I'm, I'm like, golly, you know, you should know more than you know by now. I mean, why do you keep reading the same books? But, but he, he, I never tire of him. Um, and, and I think this is why. He's been, de- he's been described as a theologian for those with a sensitive conscience. Uh, coming out of the arid scholasticism, um, I know it's a big word, just the, the, uh, the Middle Ages and, and where theology was, was uh, caricatured, not, not unfairly in some ways, as, as really being preoccupied with questions like how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, you've heard that. Then Luther just burst on the scene, not, not completely out of nowhere. There were others like Jan Hus uh, and, and, and John Wycliffe in England who certainly... Uh, there was a lot of, of faithfulness that had appeared and then was squelched um, in the years before Luther came, but for a whole host of historical and theological and social and cultural reasons, Luther was the man of the hour, and he never let abstraction get in the way of reality. And that's why I think I like him. I mean, he comes right down to the quick, and he would just cut through all of the dross, and he would be very impatient. He was a crude man. Uh, at least middle to late life, uh, cut through all the dross to try to make sense of what he called the true subject of theology, the sinning human and the justifying God. That's a phrase out of Luther, that the subject of theology is the sinning human and the justifying God. With all that goes on in the midst of all that, um, describing uh, uh, how God encounters the the sinning human um, in three ways, uh, through the two words, uh, uh, the two words of the one unified word of God, law and gospel, but then also in the experience of a word that he coined that doesn't really have a, an English translation, which we sometimes call spiritual attack or oppression, just called Unfechtungen, which is a word you have to put it in German because that's how you read it. Uh, if you're going to be going on the trip next summer, probably going to be reading and all that. And there's not an English equivalent. You might say spiritual attack. You might say oppression. But it's that sense that Jacob in particular, a huge text for him, Genesis 32, where you can't really say it was an experience of God's law. He wasn't sort of informed um, by the living word of the law of God, which Luther was very high on. He was no antinomian. He was not against the law of God in any way, shape, or form. Misnomer. Um, Luther, he's sometimes accused of that. in a way that wouldn't really describe being met by the law of God and told who we are as a sinning human being. Oh my gosh, you know, uh, I've done wrong. Behold, the man, it's me. In a different way entirely, encountering the hidden God, as he would say. And this is really where my edge has been the last couple of years. Uh, Encountering God in that way. Encountering this, almost this dark force, as he would describe it, like Jacob wrestling the angel all night and not knowing until dawn came, until revelation would come, until the light of Christ was shown, uh, that in fact he was wrestling, striving with God and being renamed Israel, he who is striven with God, who has fought with God and comes through on the other side. And so Luther would come out with these great phrases like, um, uh, we must flee from God to God. And I love that. I can't pen it. I mean, that penetrates all the way through the abstraction to a very concrete way with me uh, to realize that God, in all of his unbound absoluteness, as it was called, absolute, same word from absolve, where you, uh, a minister might absolve or we might absolve one another of our sins, which means to free. So God totally free for every other creature 
beneath God, the justifying God. is a, uh, He's the only one who creates um, through his living word. Everything else is bound by him. Uh, and so the sinning human and the justifying God are sometimes met where we flee from the dark, absolute, free God and his unbound majesty. They who would look upon him must surely die. Uh, and we flee to the preached God, to Christ and him crucified. And so the whole of theology, and I'm going to pitch it to you, Mark. The whole of theology for Luther, he would say theology is the interpretation of Scripture, the living word of God, the word that does itself to us. It attacks us and it rescues us. It kills us and it quickens us. And so Luther is very visceral. He's the anti-abstraction. He's He's absolutely, he takes great pains to get up as concrete as he can get to, uh, to, to stand in front of a living God who speaks, and as he speaks, something happens. And so therefore, experience makes a theologian. That's what he would say as well in his letter to the Galatians. The experience of what? The experience of the living word as the justifying God meets the sinning human, and something happens. We're attacked. Uh, and then we're rescued. And it's the same God. And that is a difficult word to swallow. And I've never gotten rid of it. And so that's a little bit of my experience with Luther. So let me pitch this to Mark. We want to do this as an interview. Okay. So I'm I would say this. You know, I'm trying to be a little bit funny here. So Mark, my good friend, uh, sometimes I wonder, like, how come you're not as into Luther as I am? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the question you were supposed to ask. <laughs> Okay, uh, this is fun. I like this. Well, you hadn't started yet. Um, this is uh, that, that was Luther's high school yearbook picture, by the way. Most likely to succeed, I think, was the caption under there. <laughs> Do you think so? I've never thought about that, but that oh. really. Does Andrew know this? Oh, that's funny. That's good. Um, okay, so let me say something a little bit about Luther. For me, you know, I can answer my question. What did you, I'll get to it. It's going to be part of my answer. It'll be part of the answer. Um, I, you know, I, I, I grew up in, you've all heard this before, so I grew up in a world that was defined, I think, from a religious and Christian perspective, from a faith perspective, on the basis of a sensitive conscience. <laughs> I mean, I lived in a world that sort of eat and breathe since being, you know, having a very sensitive conscience when it came to moral, moral matters. I mean, I, I, you know, this stays between us, but I mean, there was a huge kind of tension in my family as, when I was a fourth grade boy, or whether or not I could go to the YMCA Halloween party because there was going to be rock and roll music there. I mean, that's, I mean, so this was a sensitive conscience kind of world. Um, so when when uh, when Gill said that Luther was a theologian for those who have a sensitive conscience, I I I can resonate with that. I'm not sure everyone can. Um, you know, there was a there's a, a a term that's tossed around about the introspective conscience of the West. That is a conscience that tends to turn in on itself and wrangle with itself. Um, you know, I understand what that is. I understand what that is to to sort of you know have had the you know after the football game experience in high school and then be in church on Sunday morning and feel the deep tensions of that and have all kinds of internal problems, you know, because of that introspective conscience. 
I don't think I realize I kind of imposed that conscience on everyone and frankly uh, found comfort in that. You know, in other words, I, I, I knew that I couldn't be out there having all the fun that all the other people were having, um, but I knew they went home and felt really badly about it. Right? And that kind of helped me feel, you know, helped me, helped me a little bit until I realized, and I think this really, I probably didn't realize this until my mid-twenties, I hate to admit, to admit this, but until I realized, nope. A lot of them just slept like babies, right? <laughs> you know, this sort of introspective conscience that I had, there's like, boy, what a party. I'm going to go to sleep now. That was great. Wake up the next morning, no problem. Um, not everyone has the kind of pained conscience that Luther experienced. And I do think in the modern West, especially on the far side of the sexual revolution of the 60s, probably began in the late 40s, according to David Brooks, I mean, if that's the case, I mean, I, I just think there are a lot of people who don't understand. They can't relate to that. They can't relate to a conscience that troubles them. They can't relate to accusation in their heart again and again that you're not measuring up because we live in a therapeutic world, don't we? Everyone's told you measure up, you are special, you are your own world, and everything sort of revolves around that. So I think Luther can be very strange soup in the modern world. I, I do. I think he can sound, I think people can hear. That's why a lot of psychological readings on Luther today in a sort of post-Freudian setting, they tend to read Luther as, as you know, all the problems with his father and then he was psychologically problematic, probably bipolar. We've got all these kind of things. And, and maybe that's true. Little tons of there. Maybe, maybe some of that's true. Um, but at least for me personally, I have a sense of, some kind of empathy for Luther because I grew up in a world, in a, in a, a strictured world that understands the, a troubling conscience. So in my early, late teens and early 20s, when I first discovered Luther, for me, um, it was a real breath of fresh air. Not to mention the fact that if you have a Victorian piety about you, in other words, if you can't swear a little bit under your breath, I shouldn't say that, I know. Um, Luther's going to be really troubling to you. Matter of fact, we, this guy here, Heiko Obermann, Gil and I were talking about this one on Friday, um, has a collection of essays on Luther, and one of the essays in, is entitled, on Lu and this is an academic essay, on Luther's, something like Luther's strategic use of scatological language, um, which is poopy language in my family, you know. Um, and, and he, I mean, the kind of, the one-liners that, that Luther can pull out and frankly, for a 20-year-old coming out of a kind of Victorian piety into a world of some sort of... that It was kind of fun, to be honest with fun. you. you know, so that, that website we should let everybody know about. <laughs> what is the website? The Luther Insults. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Luther. There's a Luther Insults website if you want to. Like, if you really need a, a nice turn of phrase with somebody you don't like, you can type something in and it'll give you the insult, Luther Insult of the Day. <laughs> um, yeah. I think they did went from Donald Trump. But you wanted to ask me why I don't like Luther as much as you do. Yeah, I, I do like Luther. I like I like Luther. Um, I like Luther. I think Luther Luther is not a systemizer in his thought, and that's what makes him endlessly interesting. You know, so someone like Calvin, and you know, I always joke that I asked Calvin into my heart when I was 18 years old. You know, um, you know, for for you 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 asked Luther, right? Um, I, I I like. Yeah, that's right. That's right. As he broke through the door, didn't he? Um, I, I mean, Calvin. Cal, honest, Calvin would not be known today like he is if he didn't write his Institutes, which is basically a systematic body of, of Christian doctrine. Calvin would be in the panoply of many other reform, second-level reform thinkers, um, like Occlumpatius or Musculus or, or Sinus. I mean, these are names that I don't know. If they're, they're not. Household names for you all, right? Um, but they were significant. Peter Martyr Vermigli. These are very significant 
um, Reformation thinkers, but because Calvin left us this massive body of doctrine and a whole panoply of commentary literature on the Bible, um, he has taken this sort of pride of place within Reformed thought. For, um, but I will say this, Calvin was very clear to say, I would not exist if it weren't for Luther. Um, so I, I do like I do like Luther, not, maybe not as much. We're but, good. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> so what are we going to talk about now? Um, pictures, books, yeah, let's resources. Do, let's do pictures. Um, do we want to stop and see if people want to ask questions? Yeah, okay. Just take over. Anybody want to ask questions? Oh, here you go, Gil. I'll give this back to you. No, I can talk loud. Here's a few books. Um, these are all in the bookstore. This is in case you're interested in going next year. Uh, or even if you're not, but if you're looking for an easy book, all of them. Now, this is out of print now, but there's a couple of copies upstairs. If you're looking for a good, short introduction to Luther, because there's really not that many biographies of Luther. It's really strange. There's thousands and thousands of books that are analyzing Luther's thought, either pro or, or, or against, but not that many English biographies. This is a really good short one, so recommend that. Um, Heiko Obermann's, like what... Uh, Mark mentioned this is upstairs. It's in the Mark Genelette recommends section. A um, little bit, um, it's, it's accessible, but I mean, it gets to a, I mean, you, you get into some real specific parts. So if you like history and you really like getting down to some minutiae, this is your book. Um, Martin Marty wrote one. I like it. It's not, not great to me. I'd give it a, a, a B minus or a C plus. Uh, Luther's movie um, from 2003 has a lot to commend to it. I do like that. And if you're looking for a good book to kind of start, uh, more in the, uh, let me know something about what he thought. How do I piece together his thinking? Um, I like this one. Um, um, Stephen Paulson is going to be here next July for something that we're doing. Uh, and it's got little cartoons in it. He calls it his cartoon book. But don't let that fool you. It's, uh, it's actually pretty, pretty substantial. So all those are upstairs. Happy to recommend that if you want to sort of climb in this year and try to piece together a little bit. A lot of us like to read, so happy to do that. So couple of things just to highlight and let this kind of generate some, some conversation. This is uh, the Augustinian Monastery in Wittenberg. Um, Wittenberg was uh, uh, a new university, I think found in like 1502, 1503. Luther was called there as the Old Testament professor, just like Mark. Um, uh, more or less, that's not what he was called, lecturer in biblical theology, but he was an Old Testament theologian um, for all of... Uh, his work realizing the grace of God in Jesus Christ um, being the way that the justifying God justifies sinners, uh, he loved the Old Testament. I think in a particular way, the Psalms, which he called the Little Bible and Genesis. He did lectures on Genesis twice. Uh, the second half of his life, from 1535 to 1545, he did lectures on Genesis for 10 years. He stayed in those 50 chapters. Um, he couldn't get away from it. He loved it. So this is the monastery. Um, it's where Luther is said to have come to his, uh, his tower experience. And one of the towers, in the tower right there, um, where he was uh, in 1545, when he looked back on his life, I thought I'd read this. Uh, he told us how he came to this breakthrough, what's sometimes called the theological breakthrough. We don't really know when it, when it happened, somewhere between 1514 and 1517. There's a lot, of, a lot of ink has been spilt over trying to date that. Um, but this is what Luther said. It's all about Romans 1.17. That was his key verse, which reads, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
So this is all of how did Luther achieve, how did he, how did he receive, that would be Luther's language, this, this, uh, this life, this passive righteousness from God that had been revealed to him apart from the law, that the righteous should live by faith. So these are Luther's words. You can hear his, uh, the, the sensitive conscience. Listen to the affective language, words like burning or my heart, which was cold, was now warmed. Not cognitive. Luther is the head and the heart guy. I mean, if you want the whole package, he's your man. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to Romans, but thus far there had stood in my way not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word which in chapter 1, the justice of God is revealed in it. I hated that word, justice of God, which by use of the custom of all my teachers had been taught to understand philosophically as referring to formal or active justice, the justice by which God is just and he punishes sinners who are unjust. But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. So that lack of certainty, that doubt, that's what pegged Luther more than anything else. We wavered back and forth, and he couldn't have that assurance. And that was the whole system upon which all of the theology, 95% of the theology that he was inheriting, it held people on that line. You can never be quite certain, because if you weren't certain, now this is now us looking back. Correct me where you think I'm wrong. Um, the church retained the control, and Luther hated that. He couldn't, couldn't see how the pope if he had the power to dispense that kind of forgiveness, why didn't he just do it? And so he looked for a direct line through the living word of God that he could have that assurance that he would receive mercy. So I did not love, no, I rather I hated God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. And I said, isn't it enough that we are miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin? So he goes on, I meditated day and night on these words, Romans 1.17, until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the just person lives by a gift of God, that is, by faith. The justice of God is revealed through the gospel, a passive justice. And all at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. And he goes on in some great words. Very interestingly, Luther would later even say, in this tower, it occurred above the latrine. <laughs> and why does that happen? Because Luther was, again, that earthy, very visceral part, and there's a whole place, Obermann loves this part. He really goes into this in a great way about where the devil loves to live in those places. But that's where God enters in, is in the places of filth, the muck and the mire of life that right there, Luther received his breakthrough moment in a filthy and disgusting place, not unlike the way that Christ came into the world in a cow's stall, surrounded by dung and other sort of, you know, the things that are around in the middle of a stall amongst um, livestock. So it's an interesting little part. I mean, all that, that's Luther. I mean, he just smells like it's real. Any thoughts? Uh, well, well, we'll visit this here in, in Wittenberg, and actually, if my memory serves me correctly, um, there's this, if you go in, you have another slide, but if you go in and around, um, well, 
yeah, well, you can go to that slide there. That'd be great. We can talk about that. That I think, if my memory serves me correctly, this this is probably the only room in the old Augustinian monastery that actually is true to the day of Luther's time, and that's where he had his famed table talks was in this room. Um, I think that's correct. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and they have done some excavation outside, if my memory serves me correctly, where you can see where Luther's study is, um, and it's a kind of a brick structure, and it's fascinating that his study and the and the cloaca, yeah. the the latrine, is right there, kind of right there. So, um, but it's very Lutheran, if very Lutheran, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so that but the, the Augustinian monastery that that will be, I mean, talking about the tour, that'll be a major stopping point for us because. Not only is it interesting to see where where Luther sort of lived and had his had his most of his life, but there's a collection of medieval manuscripts there that I think are probably second to none in that area. Very very fascinating, um, all the way down to um, an actual indulgence. If you know what, you know the indulgences were, uh, little papers that were sold to get uh, your family members out of purgatory more quickly, um, which is not a bad capital campaign around here if you need. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. So yeah. There's lots here. This is a. The, the castle church um, where Luther is buried, and those are the, where the 95 theses were supposedly placed. I want to move past it. In 1505, when he became, do you want to go back? Um, are you going to say something, Jeff? Oh. Indeed, <laughs> that's right. Um, this is where, in 1505, when he, he was uh, on his path to law school um, uh, to please his father, uh, a lightning. Uh, a thunderstorm when he was walking and he was alone came out. The Luther, uh, the movie really catches this. He was uh, he was scared and he made a bargain with Saint Anne, the mother of of, uh, of Mary, so the grandmother of uh, of Jesus, who was the patron saint of miners. His dad was a miner who kind of made it out of the mines and then sort of owned some mines and so kind of upper lower class uh, worked really hard on his way to law school, escaping as it were the uh, the trappings of peasant life. And then he entered this monastery um, in 1505 and had his first mass. Um, this is Luther kind of as a, as a young man, um, uh, monk. As I mentioned earlier when I was trying to set up why Luther's sort of living uh, on the edge between the living God and, and the devil, uh, between death and life, and Luther's very polar. He doesn't, uh, he's not a man of nuance. He would say, if you want nuance, go to Melanchthon. <laughs> if you want to, to hear it on the edge, come to me. Uh, he would say at his first mass in 1507, uh, this was before his breakthrough and all that, where he would come back to this again and again throughout his life, realizing that if what he was saying as a Catholic, as a, at that time there wasn't just just as a priest, a priest of God with transubstantiation, where he was doing the words of consecration, hoc est corpus meum, where we get hocus pocus, uh, this is my body, and it actually becomes. Uh, not bread, but the body of Christ, and not wine, but the blood of Christ. If that really happened, he was struck with terror beneath the actuality of the living God being awakened and coming right before him. And he might have even spilled the wine to the shame of his father, etc., and so forth. But this is what Luther said. This is out of Roland Bainton's book, which is one of the books that I have up here. Talking about in the context of his of his celebrating the first mass, um, at these words, the words of consecration, I was utterly stupefied and terror stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I? Question that was always in front of Luther. 
Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. So here's an example of that unfectungen, that, that spiritual heaviness, that oppression, that attack. He was feeling the weight of if what the word says is actually true. If as the word speaks, it creates what is being spoken. The living word creates. Let there be light and poof, there was light. If that really happens and God speaks, we're toast. And that drove Luther to find relief in the preached God, the preached God of, of, uh, of Christ and him crucified. So thoughts about Luther in the monastery? And uh, we'll, we'll go to that monastery as well. And um, that's, that's in the city. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about where we're going to go, but that, that's in the city of, um, of Erfurt, which will, I think will be a real highlight, actually, of, of our trip um, for those who are able to do that. Um, but Erfurt's a classic sort of medieval town, um, with the river that sort of runs right through it, and the, and the city sort of built on top of the river in the middle. And you, you'll have um, the cathedral there in, in Erfurt is set up on a hill looking down over the city. It's very, very picturesque. Um, that's where Luther probably brought his first uh, theology lectures as well, was in, was in the hall of that church. Um, the, the Augustinian Seminary is there as well. So it's, it's a nice, it, it'll be a nice, nice spot to sort of visit. Um, if you happen to see the Luther movie, they did film that actually in that monastery. I didn't realize that because you can there's a, there's a couple of scenes that you can kind of put it together um, where Luther sort of lays prostrate on the floor when he's ordained. Um, but yeah, so Erfurt will be a, be a nice stop. Say something about Wartburg. Um, th- this is the uh, Wartburg Castle right here. Um, if you're if you're not prone toward um, you know profanity, uh, when you we have to climb up the hill to get to this you. It may, might be your first moment. Um, no, it, it's a bit of a track up here, but it's a, it's a nice, it's a, it's an interesting visit. Story about this: my, when my wife and I visited Wartburg Castle, this is in the town of Eisenach, um, which for you music people is the birthplace of Johann Sebastian Bach as well. So it's it, the Bach House there, the mu- the musical sort of center of that that little town. It's a small, idyllic town, really very beautiful. Um, Wartburg is a castle that sits up on top, sort of looking down. Um, my wife and I showed up. We, you know, we traveled to get there from where we were in sort of a, a different part of Germany, and and uh, they, they they told us uh, that the 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 um, the castle closed 30 minutes ago. And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me! And I said, listen, we don't want to do it. I don't need to see anything. We don't need to go anywhere. But can you pull any strings and get us to see the Luther Chamber? You know, this is where Luther hid out when he was a wanted man. And if my memory serves me correct, correct me, Gil, I think he translated the New Testament in Greek in this cell in 10 weeks. Is that right? So it's an, I mean, that's an amazing accomplishment, actually. You, it's hard to really gather or at least fathom how broadly intelligent Luther was. I mean, his, his ability to do that was quite impressive. Um, so I think you have a, a picture in your slide of, of the little chamber right here. So the, so the guy picked up the phone. He makes a phone call, and he says, let, let me see what I can do for you. And he walks us up this back stairwell and lets us go to the Luther chamber by ourselves to hang out there. It was really kind of fun. And he told us, he kind of gave us our own little tour, he told us that the only the only aspect of this cell that was there actually when Luther was there is the, um, do you see the little 
uh, stone thing on the floor, that's a whale vertebrae. Um, and and that was the, that, that was Luther's apparently. That was his footstool in the um, in the, that's a whale, that's what we were told that could have been. You know, I don't know. Um, but that, that's what we were, that's what we were told. But this this scene, this setting here is where Luther was was um, was protected by Frederick the Weiser uh, during a period when he was a wanted man. Translated the Bible into into German, uh, which, by the way, to this day is the standard translation of the German Bible. That's quite astounding. Um, and uh, this is also the place where he had something gets fabled. Okay, so there's some debate about this, but where he had his famous encounter with the devil and threw the ink well at the devil. The devil comes in and he throws the ink. We looked for the ink spot on the wall, but it, it wasn't there. Um, but so th- this is a, this is at Wartburg Castle. There, fascinating place. Comments? It was probably a good time. We can look at this, this famous Weimar altarpiece, which we can look at and talk about. We may save that for next week because it's almost time to go. Any comments or thoughts? Or Mark, do you want to summarize? Or questions? Yeah, Jim? There were three orders, and he, he chose almost, you know, I was going to say it's almost like choosing the Marines if you think that's the hardest one to go to. Um, it was the one that... Uh, uh, valued still um, humanism. Uh, you could still think, and he wanted that. You didn't have to sort of totally subscribe to Aquinas, which would have been the Dominicans, and then the Franciscans were into the Via Antiqua, but I can't remember who that was. And so this one brought in some of the new thinking that he really wanted to be exposed to, and it was uh, thought to be, amongst at least him, the most rigorous. And so he wanted to be an Augustinian. It was not, although he later became a great doctor of Augustine. He found Augustine to be his um, conversation partner, so to speak. That was not why. Uh, He found that uh, the Augustinian order really didn't bring up Augustine that much. Um, He brought all that in, especially as he was seized by things like law and gospel and what Augustine would call the spirit and the letter. So it's a good question. Why was he thought to be Because he's so extreme. Um, and towards the end of his life, I mean, he said some really vile things too. Oswald Bayer, who is one of these, also on Mark's recommend shelf, he even said, uh, and he's a uh, totally respect Oswald Bayer, who's been to the Advent before. Uh, he said one would even wish that Luther would have died two or three years before he did because of some of the things that he said about the Jews late in his life. Uh, it, as he got later, and, you know, we don't know, but he was not a healthy man. He would say later because of the, the rigorous way that he undertook his being a monk, it really affected his life later to the point maybe having some kidney uh, issues. And I've talked to and some physicians even said he probably had uric acid buildup, which caused some, some almost bipolar mania, manic-like symptoms or something like that. You know, we're just trying to look back. They coined a whole genre called the psycho-history, is that what it's called? And I think mostly it was around Luther, trying to look back and try to psychoanalyze famous figures and that sort of thing. Yeah, Charlie? One of the things I like about Luther is, is the way you're talking about his life is so vibrated. You know, he first sat, you know, when he had his revelation and he originally nailed the tenets and everything. Uh, that's one Luther, and then the after Luther is so different that it kind of reminds me of how God can use flawed people to Absolutely. But all came from if you look at you know, you see in in total life you see reflections of that you feel this 
nuts, but you know, but this was actually pretty good, but the rest of it, oh my goodness. Yep. Yeah, Don? Yeah. And then Ed, so then we'll wrap up. I'll let you know that. Get Timothy George here. Yeah. Um, I, my sense is that that's, um, I mean, it, it's, as with anything with Roman Catholicism, you know, I, again, I, I tended to treat Roman Catholicism as, um, in a previous life, I guess, as a, as a quantifiable entity that one can look at and say all Roman Catholics are X. I mean, I, Roman Catholicism is a complicated beast. Um, and matter of fact, you know, the editor of First Things, a fellow named Rusty Reno, who was the, who left the oh sorry who left the Episcopal Church to go to to, to Rome? Um, you know, someone asked him in a public setting one time, "Do you believe from the Catholic Catechism? Do you believe that that and that?" And he's like, "Actually, no, I don't believe any of that. Um, but my my bishop knows what I believe, and he's okay with me." And that's, so that kind of gives you a sense of the way in which Roman Catholic. So all to say, if my memory serves me correctly, I think Pope Benedict. Had very charitable things to say about Luther. That's not surprising, given the fact that he was a German. Um, but I think Pope Benedict did. There, there was a council in the late 90s where Roman Catholics and Lutherans came together to talk about the doctrine of justification by faith. That has been a highly contested. Um, the reception history of that council is a highly contested thing that continues to to generate scholarship and reflection. But I, th- I, I think it'll be very an interesting thing to see. I mean, frankly, I mean, I think that there's probably um, a view of Roman Catholicism that recognizes that this is a dynamic, our faith is a dynamic entity, and there are aspects of the Council of Trent, which is basically a kick in the knee of Luther and, Luther and Lutheranism, um, that a lot of that was softened on some level probably with Vatican II, and some people are still angry about that, I think. And with the current pope, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, this is gonna, you know, it's like, it seems like all bets are off. Who knows? Yeah. Ed, we'll wrap up. Fair enough. Yeah, we should get fly me to the moon. It sounds more like early vascular dementia, losing judgment and social grace. There we go. I'd say that's probably. I need my wife to remember word. those terms. That's right. <laughs> what was that again? Poor Mark. He just has early vascular dementia. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. So, with that, Mark, you want to pray for us? Sure. Father, you give us men and women in the life of the church from its inception to the current moment to blaze trails for us, to prod us, to encourage us, to challenge us. Um, and Lord, we thank, we're thankful for Luther. We, we, don't, we don't put a halo on him. He wouldn't want one on himself. Um, but we're grateful for the legacy that he's left us in a body of literature and in a stream of thought, Lord, that continues to produce fruit in the life of your church. And Lord, we see that around here at our, our church at Advent. We're grateful for the ways in which the thought of this man has shaped the way in which we think about you and the gospel, primarily because we want to be people who love your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you will continue to shape us and to form us and to give us some insight into this man and, and his legacy. We're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.